Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. All right. So, Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've been up to? How about your trip to New York? I had a wonderful trip to New York. I saw some I could hunt. I saw the new Sondheim. Here we are. I saw an off-road ratio called Dig. I had a lovely trip. I hung out with my friend Jeff. We watched a lot of old TV. We watched the movie Ten, which we've been meaning to see for many years, and is what, the Bo Derek movie. The Bo Derek movie. <laughs> okay. We used to play Silver Screen Trivial Pursuit, and Silver Screen Trivial Pursuit loved the movie Ten. It would, by the way, the movie Ten. Totally misnamed. The only time that the number 10 is brought up in the movie is he's telling a psychiatrist he's infatuated with this woman. And the woman says, well, how attractive is she on a scale of 1 to 10? And Dudley Moore says 11. And that's the only time the word 10 is mentioned in the movie. (laughs) The name of the movie should be 11. Why is the movie (laughs) called 10? I don't know. Okay, cool. And I didn't realize there was a uh, Some Like It Hot musical on Broadway right now. That's uh, There is. It's fun. really interesting. They decided, all right, Daphne is trans. And that's an interesting take on it. But of course, it means you can't end with Nobody's Perfect. It was an interesting take. It's well done and it's very funny. It's co-written by Amber Ruffin, who is one of the kids' favorite writers on Late Night with Seth Meyers. Cool. Meanwhile, also speaking of theater, my daughter's play that she had a relatively major role in was this past weekend. She did very well. She felt like one of the most natural people on stage. Yeah, and she was playing a lesbian lawyer, and she had to make a cocktail on stage. Coming up with how she was going to do that was a whole big process for us. Basically, she was just told, make a cocktail. So she had to come up with something that both her and her scene partner would actually enjoy drinking. So uh, we made up iced tea, put it in an old uh, whiskey bottle, and (laughs) she then made some uh, simple syrup to go with it and uh, a whole bunch of stuff. So she ended up making... Uh, basically honey lemon iced tea, (laughs) but made it look like a cocktail. It was quite good. Oh, also we saw the Steve Martin, Martin Short traveling stage show. That's awesome. Yeah, no, it was, it was really, really good. And mom was up here for both of those. And that was a nice visit. Uh, Yeah, we usually don't have this much banter at the beginning of a second part of a month. In this case, we are actually recording this on two separate days. But in the meantime, we need to get into talking about some comics. Okay, let's do Fantastic Four number 46, Those Who Would Destroy Us, Introducing the Mystery of the Seeker. So Black Bolt is featured very prominently on the cover, along with the heads of the FF and all the Inhumans. But the person they actually name check on the cover is not featured on the cover, and that is the Seeker, who will be a new character. So we launch into the issue. Black Bolt is in the middle of beating the crap out of the Fantastic Four. Joe Sinat is absolutely killing it on page two, where Black Bolt is fighting the thing the way that Sinat spots the blacks on the thing. It's just fantastic. The sense of three-dimensionality, the sense of solidity. We finally get to see Triton a little bit. We still don't get to see his face, but we get to see him without his cloak on as we realize that he is a fishman. And he suddenly, like all fishmen do, has to run and be in the sea. Fantastic Four go back to fighting various Inhumans. We see Karnak try to use his karate chop on Sue's force shield. Meanwhile, we see someone named the Seeker. So the Seeker is a guy with a big, tall red hat and sunglasses on. 
He shows up with his goons in Fantastic Four headquarters, finds the Dragon Man there. It is still odd that Dragon Man is part of this storyline. We have so much going on with the Fantastic Four and the Inhumans. I mean, just look at that cover with all those characters on it. Dragon Man is not one of them. He is an extraneous element of this storyline, but that's fine. The Seeker is an Inhuman, is searching for Inhumans. There aren't that many Inhumans, but he sees Dragon Man and goes like, that might be an Inhuman, I don't know. <laughs> they go ahead and grab Dragon Man, abduct him. Meanwhile, Black Bolt and the Thing have been fighting for a long time. Thing's about to collapse, but it turns out Black Bolt is also about to collapse. They have worn each other out. On page 10, the last panel, Black Bolt totally looks like he was drawn by Steve Rude. Oh, yeah, you're right. I can see that. And, I mean, Karnak, too, for that matter. Yes. We talked before about how Kirby Reinman looked a lot like Steve Rude, but so does Kirby Sinat to a certain extent. We then get a great panel. Lockjaw picks up a girder in his mouth and whaps thing with it. That's what you want a badass giant sci-fi dog to do. That's the sort of ass-kicking you want. Finally, the Inhumans decide to just get out of there. They have Lockjaw teleport them away. The Fantastic Four go home and find a big hole in their wall where the Seeker has kidnapped Dragon Man. They are able to follow the Seeker's heat particle trail. The Seeker has also grabbed Triton from the sea. FF show up to fight him, and he quickly tells them the entire history of the Inhumans. We now know about how they have been living secretly, genetically advanced beyond humans, developed all these secret powers. They decided to live apart in a great refuge. We don't know where that is yet. But then, of course, Dragon Man escapes. Everything goes crazy. Triton is drowning in the oxygen on the floor. Dragon Man is going crazy. Does the Seeker get away, or the Fantastic Four and the Seeker are all together to face Dragon Man here? We're too late. Dragon Man has broken loose, says the Seeker. And then right behind him, the Fantastic Four are reiterating that they seem to all be in the same place trying to uh, figure out what to do next. I will say on also on page two, absolutely gorgeous linked panel. You can see what shadows are being cast on Black Bolt's legs and armpits. And whenever Johnny is on panel, Johnny should be the light source. All shadows <laughs> should be cast in relation to Johnny. Like, there should be no shadows in Blackwell's armpits because there's a big light flame shining under his armpits. Uh, I don't know. You know, Johnny's Johnny's red hot. He's not white hot. It doesn't bother me so much, but I see what you're saying. I mean, it bothers me much more about how much he would heat up a room that he was in. <laughs> wow, you know, this is getting really, really hot in here. <laughs> All nitpicky. On page eight, we see the Seeker flying around in a little flying gear he has. And many years later, when Kirby moves to DC and is doing the new gods for DC, he has got a flying gear for Orion in that book that looks very much like the Seeker's little standing flying gear here. So we end on another cliffhanger, and I'm like, okay, how long is this storyline going to be exactly? But unlike the Frightful Four storyline, which I felt overstated its welcome, this feels like a huge addition to the Fantastic Four world, a huge turning point. We've been building up to the Who is Medusa storyline for a long time, and now it turns out there's a huge, fascinating, satisfying answer to that. Dragon Man being here does justify, you know, having more going on. This is a fantastic issue. A little shocking that it's still a cliffhanger, but it earns it. Yeah, and this is going to butt right up against the arrival of the Silver Surfer, too. So this really is everything functioning at full power, basically. We are hurtling through the creme de la creme of the Fantastic Four here. And the creme de la creme of Dicko on both Spider-Man and Doctor Strange at the same time. So we've got, you know, an embarrassment of riches here. Marvel at its maybe all-time best. I think that in the previous episode, I noted that the 
female heroes seem to be getting more and more capable and yet clearly are not getting any more respect. And I don't know whether that is meant as a commentary by Stan Lee or whether that is not something that Stan Lee is consciously doing. (laughs) But on page five, when Karnak is attacking Reed and Sue, Sue throws up a force field and Reed says, good girl, Sue, you threw up your force field just in time. It's like, here's a doggy treat. (laughs) That's how it feels to me. Come on, dude, have a little more respect. And yeah, the big picture of Dragon Man asleep there is just absolutely fantastic. On page seven, the Seeker has something that he refers to as a universal control rod, which I was like, wait, isn't that what Annihilus has, who's a villain we have not met yet. And I'm like, no, that's the cosmic control rod. This is the universal yes. control rod. They are they are different. We should not get yes. them confused with each other. Page eight, panel four. I just find it really odd that Kirby put that piece of crumbling wall right in front of Thing and Black Bolt pounding on each other. That just does not seem like something that Jack Kirby would usually do. It seems like, you know, you want to show the power of this this confrontation. If this were inked by Coletta, I would almost think that Coletta had just drawn that thing there just to cover up stuff he didn't want to ink. But that's not what's going on. I don't know. It just really jumped out at me as out of character for him. I don't have any problem with that. I think it's less than he's trying to convey the fight and more he's trying to convey they are in a crumbling building. And I think that that is the information he chose to feature in that panel. And I think it works well. Okay. On page 10, first panel, Karnak is saying to Black Bolt, he's too strong for you, Black Bolt. There's only one thing for you to do. You must use your master blow. So two things about that. One, he just comes across like the toad to Magneto, which does not become him in many ways. And the other thing about that is he refers to his master blow. And of course, I'm thinking that's his voice right? That's going to be his master blow. But then Black Bolt just basically gives him a judo chop. And Karnak is like, it's not possible. No living being could remain standing after Black Bolt's master blow. And I'm like, oh, that's what he was talking about? What's... Yeah. Uh, but I guess we don't yet know about his actual superpower, do we? I think they mentioned why he can't speak. I don't remember. Did they? Last issue? Yeah, I don't know. When the Inhumans are fleeing, we hear that Black Bolt has the so-called electron power. Uh, I think that Reed had speculated in the previous issue that that little tuning fork on his head was absorbing stuff from the environment. But we basically get the name of that. Uh, Last thing I want to say is when the Seeker finally introduces himself by name, I just could not help but think of the song by The Who – called the seeker you know they call me the seeker i've been searching low and high i won't get to find the inhumans till the day i die yeah sure oh wow uh, sure why not yeah but this is a fantastic issue as you said it's just jam-packed with the inhumans and the seeker and dragon man and all this crazy stuff and it's tons of fun yeah and really the start of the issue as always is Sinat just turning everything absolutely gorgeous you know Sinat is the king of scales that's why <laughs> dragon man is here Sinat just absolutely loves scales and so he's got triton and dragon man in this Sinat is in scale heaven. (laughs) 
Well, he does it very well. Who knows if he actually loves it or if he's like, oh, God, I got to do my fantastic job of scales again, <laughs> which as an erstwhile anchor, I can feel that way sometimes about things where it's like, yeah, this is one of my strong suits, but dude, am I sick of doing it right now? So let's go ahead and move on to Strange Tales. The cover says, this is the big one. Hang on to your hat. It's the end of Hydra. And we see the small band of S.H.I.E.L.D. inside a circle of Hydra goons, who we will see on the inside are actually on skateboards, which is kind of silly, but we will get to that in a moment. Nick Fury really does look like his World War II self. I'm sorry, skateboard unit B? Uh, yes, that's the one. This issue is census-shattering story by Stan Lee, power-packed presentation by Jack Kirby, drama-drenched drawing by Don Hack, dreamy design delineation by Joe Sennod, boo-boo bulging balloons by Sam Rosen. Oh no, we have Hack. Is he here to ruin this book? No, not at all. Have we seen Sennod inking Hack yet? I don't believe so. Uh, yeah, I think this is the first we've seen it. Wood was good on Hook. Ramita was better on Heck. Sinat is best on Heck. This looks like a Kirby Sinat book. Any insertion of Don Heck is incidental. It is a gorgeous book. We just did Fantastic Four, and this looks like more of the same. It's lovely. Yes, I agree. When last we left off, Nick Fury was working with the female agent of Hydra, who is actually the daughter of, and I think I was calling Supreme Hydra. Is it Imperial Hydra? I think it's Imperial Hydra. They are fighting their way out of the base when the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents, led by Gabe and Dum Dum, come in and join them to help them along. One thing that I found odd and unfortunate is on page three, Gabe is laying down covering fire, and then some unnamed agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. says, keep firing, boy, that's the way. And you know, <laughs> that's an unfortunate turn of phrase when you're talking to a black man. Uh, and I, I have had to let friends from the North know, and they had no idea that uh, you do not call a black man boy. You know, and even, yeah. you know, because oftentimes it's like, you know, oh, yeah, that's my boy that you'll say about, you know, your friend who just did something. And it's like, yeah, but you don't say that there. <laughs> There's just too much yeah. of a history with that word. And they're clearly showing Gabe as a capable leader who everybody has respect for. So I presume Lee had absolutely no idea that that is not a phrase that you use. I'm not sure he had no idea, but sure, let's let's get. I mean, you know, I certainly think he didn't mean any ill intent, but it's uh, something he should have been aware of and avoided. But you know, I think he, as a writer, has a lot of respect for Gabe Jones. Right. We see Hydra's skateboard squad B, which unfortunately they actually refer to as skateboards. I really wish they had come up with some Stanley crazy science fiction name for them. I would be able to take them a lot more seriously if they had. Anyway, uh, we see the Brainosaur. It does still look sort of like Nick Fury's fever dream that he had of the actual dragon dinosaur type thing when he was being interrogated by Hydra. And we have a fantastic picture of it on the top of page six, this perspective looking pretty much straight down from right above the brainosaur as Tony Stark is being loaded into the thing. And then the next panel, we see this rocket. It's essentially the brainosaur is on a two-stage Atlas booster. And that 
takes off directly from the helicarrier. Somebody says, only Stark could have designed a launch setup like this one by dissipating the shock recoil through a lower air chamber. The carrier remains perfectly stable and vibrationless, which, you know, okay, that's cool. I like that. That's the kind of stuff that Tony Stark should indeed be doing. One interesting thing is that Tony Stark is a regular supporting character in this book. They have never once mentioned that Tony Stark is Iron Man. And even in something like this, where he might presumably want to change into Iron Man while he's on this big solo mission to stop the Vedatron bomb, there is never even a caption saying, by the way, you can read more about Tony Stark in his own book, Tales of Suspense, featuring Iron Man. He's just a recurring character in this book as Tony Stark, not as Iron Man in any way. That's interesting. Yeah. At some point, Nick and the female Hydra agent have split off from the group of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents who are now... The S.H.I.E.L.D. agents, surrounded by Skateboard Unit B or whatever they're called. The S.H.I.E.L.D. agents break out while Imperial Hydra is now worrying that Tiger Squad has been defeated and he now is resigning himself to what he must do next, which we'll get back to after Tony deactivates the Betatron bomb using the Brainosaur. He basically uh, uses this little tentacle thing that's at its head to pull the warhead out of the Betatron bomb. So at this point, the world leaders are saying, well, they're no longer holding the world hostage. So all of those diplomats they sent around to make their demands, we can just arrest them all right now. (laughs) So that is good. They can all be wrapped up. So we see that Imperial Hydra has decided that since he is essentially defeated, he must blow up the entire Hydra base, even though it means it will be killing his daughter. And then what I really like as a twist reveal at the end, it was very clearly implied for this entire storyline that the CEO of Imperial Industries International was the leader of Hydra. But now it turns out, no, it was this nondescript secretary of the CEO, a little guy with glasses and a mustache, who is the one who created Hydra. The other guy has his own worldly power. This was, you know, this guy who just wanted to give his daughter the world. And we leave it off with the cliffhanger of he's about to blow up the base. So I have questions. I had read these comics once or twice before, but reading them this time, I once again was completely fooled into thinking the CEO was the head of Hydra, and I was shocked by this twist. I now want to go back and go like, um, I was very convinced it was the CEO, and it was the third time I'm reading these. I'm not sure you played fair with this mystery, but also it just doesn't make any sense because the whole Hydra headquarters was built underneath the CEO's boardroom. That would seem like something it would be easier for the CEO to do than for his lowly assistant to do. The whole thing is rather shocking. It's fun to have a twist. I always like it when they pull off twists in stories. I'm just not sure they actually pulled it off. But it's fun that they tried. Yes. All right. That was not quite the end, but that was a good climax for that. And then we will have the denouement next issue. They promise the end of Hydra in the end. They promise the climax of the storyline. The storyline is still going strong at the end of the issue. So not exactly keeping their promise. But given that this is clearly the penultimate chapter of the Doctor Strange saga, it is nice to also have the penultimate chapter of the S.H.I.E.L.D. saga and to have a big book of penultimateness. (laughs) 
Yes. So the pincers of power, script Stan Lee, art Steve Ditko. They do not mention anything about plot by Steve Ditko on this one. Lettering by S. Rosen. What more can you ask? Dormammu has determined that Baron Mordo just can't get the job done, so he is going to do it himself. Now, he is always using some of his power to keep this barrier around the mindless ones to protect them from overrunning his dark dimension, which has all sorts of other stuff that he actually is sort of a protector of. So he sends something out to essentially anesthetize all of them so he can then concentrate elsewhere. He then pulls together a council of these evil despots of various dimensions to come in and witness his defeat of Doctor Strange. The pen on page three where all of the rulers of neighboring dimensions show up through their dimensional portals is just amazing. Dicko loves drawing interdimensional portals, and there are these sort of curvy, wispy things that they're all emerging from, and I love it. And I love then the gathered group of um, petty other dimensional tyrants on the bottom of page three. Including the one that looks like he's about four feet, four feet tall (laughs) (laughs) is an interesting thing. He has brought them all here to witness this and he challenges Dr. Strange to a battle wherein they're not allowed to use any actual spells And I guess they make a differentiation here between psionic power and actual mystical power, even though they both seem like they're related. But anyway, they're only going to be allowed to use their psionic powers and these little wrist pincer things, which seems like a dumb thing for Dormammu to do because he's got a lot more power than (laughs) Doctor Strange. So why would he limit himself like this? Dormammu has always been shown as a honorable guy. I mean, this whole storyline is happening because he promised he wouldn't invade Earth, and he wants to fight Doctor Strange man-to-man. He doesn't want to have a mystical battle with Doctor Strange. Throughout this storyline, we've had more and more focus on Doctor Strange's martial prowess, on his ability to throw down physically when he needs to, and this is the ultimate expression of that, that uh, Dormammu is like, no, let's, let's put down our spells, put on these pincers, and the pincers are so weird. This is just fascinating <laughs> Dicko imagination. If they're going to have some sort of hand-to-hand fight, if this is going to be a strange tale, then the pincers make this fight strange. I love them. They are so bizarre. I think you like them a little bit more than I do. I was finding them a little bit limited. But then I guess with the fantastic battles of spells that we've had in the previous issue, a change of pace is not a bad thing. And he does have a great physical battle between the two of them that lasts on and on for many pages with many reversals. And at the very end, Mordo, who's seeing this fight, decides to come in and rescue Dormammu, who is looking like he's on the verge of defeat and he shoots a mystical bolt at Doctor Strange's back, which is disrupted to some degree by the Ancient One, who is still quite weak. But it looks like Doctor Strange is, if not dead, at least very much defeated. We also see Clea still having to look through the little TV viewer thing there about what's going on. And she's trying to warn him when this happens, but he can't hear her. Uh, At one point, she says to herself, I cannot bear to watch, and yet I am powerless to turn away. 
which just reminds me of that scene in The Simpsons where Bart has repainted the lines in the parking lot so that they are just one foot closer together. And Milhouse says, I fear to watch, and yet I cannot look away. <laughs> which, you know, uh, no, just me? I guess so. Then on page nine, Doctor Strange says to Dormammu, we humans, whom you mock and scorn, have a science called judo. <laughs> he does a judo throw. The last panel we have has no real text on it other than the caption about the next issue. And it's just Dormammu standing over Dr. Strange's prone body with mystic smoke coming up off of his body. It really is an interesting choice to have there be no script, no bravado, just this does not look good. <laughs> And next issue, the final defeat. I wish Clea had more to do in this issue and in the storyline. You know, she did have a big role to play in the storyline before when she released the Mindless Ones to save Doctor Strange once. But since then, she's just been literally sealed up in a bubble. I wish she could escape that bubble. I wish that Doctor Strange had heard her here when she called out to try to save him. Other than that. This is a great issue. I had pretty much the same thought about Clea. If she's not going to be able to warn him here, what is the point of bringing her into the story at all? Yeah, I'd say that in the fight, it is a little bit of a shame that they are fighting just strictly in a void because Dicko always does a great job of having people interact with the props and the stuff in the room. Yep. And indeed, it's a little unbelievable when Dormammu has both of Strange's hands twisted behind his back and then Strange is able to kick off and knock him over and it's like what is he kicking off of <laughs> a shapeless <laughs> void it's a, it's a little bit of a shape but it's fine it's the nature of the dark dimension what you're saying there might very well have something to do with my feeling of uh, i felt this a little bit underwhelming you know this, this fight and that might very well be it that we didn't get all the crazy mystical dimensional stuff in the background and things for them to physically interact with but that being said it was a good fight scene and a good setup for a final conclusion Yep. This is an absolutely gorgeous issue, presumably plotted by Ditko, beautifully plotted. I love the fact that this feels like a major wrap up to this epic story. I love how they decide to settle it man to man. I love the cliffhanger. I'm very excited for the next issue. Yeah, uh, well, I'm excited for the next issue, but I'm also thinking, oh, but that's going to be the pinnacle. And then we're going to have Ditko kind of petering out for his last few months yeah. at Marvel. So I'm, I'm a little dreading that. All right, why don't you go ahead and take Tales of Suspense here? All right, Tales of Suspense featuring Iron Man and Captain America, My Life for Years. And right away on the cover, we have a big shock. Don Heck is gone. We failed to note last issue that Don Heck, after a long run on Iron Man as the co-creator of the character and longtime illustrator of the character for many years, is now gone. We should have noted that was his last issue last month. And this time we have Adam Austin, who is actually Gene Colan. And we have a very Colan-esque cover here of Iron Man Finding the Black Knight. And I'm loving it. I think this is an excellent cover and felt like heck got worse and worse in his years on the book. This is a promising new beginning with this cover. What do you think of this cover? Uh, I think it's quite good. Actually, one of the things I was really impressed by is the indication of the woods in the background around the castle, just the texture that whoever the anchor is used on that area down there. That's actually what really got my attention. <laughs> and, uh, you know, about Heck leaving this book, 
yes, this is an improvement over what Heck has been doing of late. Uh, as I said, I had been a defender of Heck for many, 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 many months there. Uh, you will not be seeing really any more of that from me at this point. And I think that one of the contributing factors to that fact is that he's not going to be doing Iron Man and is instead going to mainly be doing Avengers, and he was just much more suited to this character than he is to a team book. Yeah, uh, this is an improvement. I think that it is much to the detriment of uh, what we're going to be seeing Heck doing. So then we start the issue, I went for yours, the Invincible Iron Man. So the credits are crazy. Yes. This sort of set some kind of record. All of these bullpen buddies had a hand in this one. Stan Lee... Roy Thomas, his first Marvel superhero credit, Adam Austin, who is actually Gene Cohen, Gary Michaels, his first Marvel superhero credit, Saul Brodsky, who is their production designer. I guess he is considered to be the secret anchor of Fantastic Four number one, but he has not gotten a lot of credit on the page. Flo Steinberg, who also works in the offices and rarely gets credit on the page, and merry old Marie Severin who is an incoming great Marvel artist who was getting her first credit on the page. She is the sister of John Severin, who has been inking and finished penciling Nick Fury recently. So first of all, I should say this issue sounds awful. It sounds like <laughs> we have way too many people involved here, and this is going to be a disaster, both in writing and art. It's not. This is a perfectly fine issue. All of these artists somehow come together just fine. You wouldn't think that Gene Cohen and Marie Severin would necessarily fit together. Presumably, Marie Severin is doing most of the inking here. I, I disagree. I, I can very much see those two working together. I, when I see that combination, I'm like, oh, OK, yeah, I think this will be good. Yeah, and indeed it is. So we have never seen Gene Cohen inked by a decent inker at Marvel before. We have only seen Gene Cohen, a.k.a. Adam Austin, inked by Vince Galetta. And it has been absolutely atrocious. But here we have him first showing up to pencil Iron Man. I don't think Gene Cohen is an ideal fit for Iron Man. Gene Cohen is an ideal fit for Submariner because Submariner lives in fluid and Gene Cohen is very fluid. He also pencils very fluid on Iron Man. Iron Man is not very fluid. Iron Man is solid. He is made of metal. Gene Cohen sort of starts this era here of Iron Man just being a naked man without a penis covered red and yellow. <laughs> Uh, yes. The whole idea that there might be something solid metal about the suit is gone, but that's fine. That's a standard thing with Iron Man through the years. You can't complain about people drawing him like a naked man. That is how he is often drawn. And they go back and forth about what sort of armor he actually has on and how form-fitting it is. One further note about the credits. You mentioned Gary Michaels. That's actually Jack Abel. Oh, Okay, Gary. Okay, who was I thinking of? Was I thinking of Michael Fleischer or something? I don't know. You didn't say anybody. You just said Gary Michaels. Okay, so Gary Michaels. So Jack Abel, he is going to be a major inker going forward. So I guess he might be the main inker on this book. I don't know. Marie Severin, <laughs> of course. Who knows who did what on this book? All I know is it looks just fine. So let's go and jump into the art. We start off on page one. Iron Man is going to the hospital where Happy Hogan is. I really like Iron Man. I really like the five people in the background, a nurse, a doctor, two reporters all gathered around, and they just look gorgeous. This book looks like a syndicated daily comic strip. It looks like Steve Roper and Mike Nomad or something. It looks like Mary Worth. I like it a lot. It is such a relief to see Gene Cohen inked with a brush instead of Coletta's scratchy pen, and this is the way it was meant to be. Iron Man shows up at Happy Hogan's 
hospital room, finds out he's been kidnapped. There are hoof marks on the windowsill. It's like, well, clearly <laughs> it was Black Knight and his flying horse. And it's so clear that it was Black Knight's flying horse. He figures out it's a trap. And he goes to one of Marvel Comics, never has any shortage of castles on the outskirts of New York. And indeed, here is a seemingly abandoned castle on the outskirts of New York. And of course, he does think to himself, since I seem to remember reading somewhere that an English baron had this castle transplanted from Britain, stone by stone. So this is not the castle that Prince Deferia had transported from Italy, stone by stone. <laughs> this is one that was brought in from England. Well, may- maybe he's just misremembering. Maybe he's just getting it confused. He forgot that it was Italy. <laughs> exactly. He then finds Black Knight. Black Knight is using all sorts of fancy gadgets on him he's never used before. We then get to the one really dumb thing about this issue, which is that the Black Knight has defeated Iron Man, has knocked him flat, and says, now it is time to destroy him. Now, Black Knight has a laser lance. You would think he could just cut through Iron Man's armor and slice his head off. But instead, he decides to fly out on his flying horse and dump him from a high height. Well, of course, Iron Man's wearing armor. That probably wouldn't hurt him. And as it turns out, he's dumping him over water. And Iron Man wakes <laughs> up, fights him, but then Iron Man gets knocked loose and falls, hits the water, and he's fine. <laughs> like, like this is the worst death trap ever. <laughs> of course, we have a little trauma with Cinderbird and Pepper, but then Iron Man finds that the Black Knight has got away. He goes back. He calls the police to come get Happy Hogan. The police get him not realizing that Iron Man is dying in the next room and says, Hogan is so very breathing, but where's Iron Man? No time to worry about him. And anyway, we all know he's invincible. Slam. And they slam that are on the dying Iron Man. So that is the end of this issue. I think this issue is a huge turning point in the adventures of Iron Man. The co-creator of the character, Don Heck, is finally gone. A much better penciler has arrived. We finally find out how good this penciler is now that he has a decent inker, whoever that inker might be for the first time in normal history. Uh, we have the first writing of Roy Thomas. We have the first thinking of Jack Abel. We have the first who knows what of Marie Severin. This is a huge turning point for Marvel Comics, and I'm loving it. Yeah, I, I'm assuming this is like when they sometimes give the credits of D hands for Inker. <laughs> I'm guessing that it was a combination of Jack Abel and Marie Severin. What Flo Steinberg is doing, I do not know. I, I think this seems pretty clear to me that this whole thing is written by Roy Thomas, that Stanley is just here as editor. But yeah, I wonder how this whole hodgepodge came about. I wonder if Don Heck had an issue and had to drop out at the last moment and they had to scramble or whether they had planned to do this and brought Gene Colan in, but he's still working full-time at DC and now doing two half-book features for Marvel and he might have just gotten behind. You know, that's one of the things I find fascinating about how these things might happen. Yes, who knows? What a mess. But somehow, amazingly, it all works. And if this was mostly written by Roy Thomas, it is a nice debut by Roy Thomas, other than the very dumb thing of dropping him from a high height into water, which does not harm him at all. Well, honestly, the story and then the pacing with Roy Thomas, or what I'm assuming is Roy Thomas, did kind of bother me. It sort of felt like they dragged out the suspense of him trying to track down the Black Knight for like 
it seemed to me way too long in the story that I would have liked them to have gotten fighting earlier. And then when they do start uh, having a confrontation, the Black Knight is using illusions of himself to make Iron Man just take wild swings and use up his so-called transistor power. Honestly, I'm a little bit disappointed by the uh, the way that Colin depicted him swinging at illusions. Uh, it sort of looks like he is just swinging at nothing. It has to be described in the very verbose text what's going on there. Page six very much feels like I have a note here that just says feels like Thomas dialogue. <laughs> so Thomas is essentially doing his ersatz Stan Lee and is basically Stanley amped up even higher. <laughs> but I just feel that Roy Thomas paced this story a little bit slow. I wish they could have gotten to the actual battle a little bit earlier. Uh, as you said, the whole idea of just dropping him in the water makes no real sense. So I like the art. Uh, as you said, it seems like it should have been a train wreck, but it really wasn't. But in terms of the story, I'm left a little bit cold. Yeah, I would story just fine. I think this is a nice introduction of Roy Thomas to the Marvel Universe. I like castles with suits of armor in them. Black Knight I've never particularly loved, but he's always been drawn by Don Heck. Gene Collins Black Knight I like the look of, and uh, I'm enjoying this issue. Okay, should we go ahead and move on to Captain America? Let's do it. All right. Where Walks the Sleeper, spellbinding script by Stan Lee, spectacular layouts by Jack Kirby, sensational penciling and scintillating delineation by George Tosca, stereophonic lettering by A. Simek. So we're back to the sleeper robot who still looks dumb as hell without knees or <laughs> elbows. I just hate the look of this robot without knees and elbows. Walking like Frankenstein, stomping through the German countryside. For some reason, Stan has decided that Jack and Tesca have done this a little violently, so he keeps having Captain America think the whole time, it's a good thing that these towns are completely deserted and no one's being killed as he's crushing all these towns yeah. to death. I'm not a big fan of the art in this issue. I feel like the Tesca-Kirby combo is, goes back and forth from issue to issue in terms of how good it is. I feel like maybe based on how rushed Tusca is, but I'm not a big fan of the art in this one. The big problem with this issue is that Captain America doesn't know what to do with himself, just running after the sleeper, and it's like, this isn't doing any good. And then he gets a motorcycle, and he says, oh, if I can get to a missile base nearby, they can shoot missiles at the sleeper. And then he foolishly decides to ride his motorcycle over a plank of wood, over a chasm, and uh, it breaks, unsurprisingly. He has to climb himself up onto the hill supposedly still going to get this missile from the missile base, but then it turns out the female sleeper agent. Now, again, I can't stress enough, Captain America had the names and addresses of all of the sleeper agents in his pocket for the last 20 years and <laughs> could have arrested them at any time, but he did not. And so the second sleeper agent succeeds in waking up her sleeper. Her sleeper is a much cooler looking robot. It is a flying manta ray robot. It looks awesome. And as soon as Captain America sees that one, he's like, Ugh, forget the missile, forget anything I was trying to do before. <laughs> I'm going to try to climb up onto this one, which it's not exactly believable that he would be able to climb up onto it, given that it's flying way high in the air above him. But they sort of make it make sense. He rides the winds that are being generated by it or something like that. Nice image on page eight of him on top of it trying to hold on. It sucks up the dumb-looking sleeper, to its bottom, so that now it has become the wings for the Frankenstein walk-in sleeper. And that's 
fairly cool, I guess. Meanwhile, we got a third sleeper agent who's waking up a third sleeper, and Cap, at this point, sees allied planes attacking the flying sleeper and just decides, well, they don't need me here. <laughs> I'm just getting in the way. So he dives off into a tree, and that is the end of the issue. So Captain America, completely useless in this issue, uh, contributes nothing other than getting in the way of his allies and considering, but then failing to find a missile base. But generally, I like the sleeper agents waking up the sleepers. I think the new sleeper looks much cooler than the old sleeper, and that this is a perfectly serviceable middle part of a storyline, other than the fact that Cap doesn't know what to do with himself, and he's completely useless. Yeah, uh, I mean, I find this fun. Yes, there is a lot of stuff that makes no sense. First of all, that motorcycle, he steals the motorcycle. I mean, that's yeah. just a motorcycle that's just sitting there that belongs to someone, presumably. And he just steals the motorcycle and then rides it over a log for some reason <laughs> that then breaks. And then he loses the motorcycle and it goes down into the canyon. So, uh, sorry, random German dude who had this motorcycle. <laughs> You're out of luck. The female sleeper agent, when she is shouting at her, uh, underlings here on page four panel two really reminds me of the female i forget her name but in the austin powers movies the one who's always shouting yes frau blucher uh no frau blucher is from from young frankenstein and i keep on thinking i keep on thinking frau blucher but then i'm like <laughs> no 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 that's young frankenstein that's not this i don't know and again, with the whole thing about Stan trying to tone down the violence of things, last panel on page nine, this other agent is saying, how fortunate you are that his is the last name you will hear before Der Tag, and then explains what Der Tag means. And he's shooting a gun, right? He's shooting a gun at somebody, and there's a sound effect, fuck. But then he says, when this gas wears off, you will awaken. All of the world shall be under the heel of the Third Reich once again. It's like, dude, that's a gun. That is not gas. <laughs> and then the last thing I'll point out is that in the letters page, we have, I believe, not our first letter from Don McGregor. Yes, Don McGregor is back in the letters pages. He is one of their most regular writers. Yes, it is good to see him back. Yeah, I say in my notes, Captain America sees the second sleeper flying overhead, forgets all about the missile he was trying to acquire to destroy the first sleeper. And I say, wouldn't that be a doubly good idea right now? Yes. <laughs> Getting the missile. <laughs> yes. Very good point. There is no reason this should invalidate that strategy. Yeah, good point. Anyway, it's, it's a fun little adventure. I am enjoying this storyline overall. All right. Let's move on to Avengers number 24, our final book of the month. Yes. We are still in the future. The Avengers are still fighting Kang. Ravona and her father are ruling this kingdom that Kang is trying to take over. Uh, at this point, the armies of the kingdom have been pretty much defeated. Kang's armies, meanwhile, are trying to break through the Plasto Defense Shield that is protecting their capital city, presumably, from these invading hordes. So we should say that this is by Lee Hecken Ayers. For the last several issues, Lee has been trying to save the Avengers by having great pencilers inking Heck. He had Bollywood inking heck for several issues, and then he had John Romita inking heck. Now, if you're going to hire great pencilers to work on the Avengers, then why put them inking heck? Why not just have them pencil <laughs> the book? 
why not just have Wally Wood pencil the Avengers? Why not just have General Rita pencil the Avengers? Why are you putting them on the job of sort of rescuing Heck? Now he has given up on that plan. And this time he just says, Stanley Ryder, Don Heck, penciler, Dick Ayers, inker. You know, I'm a bigger fan of Ayers' inker than you are. I don't think he's as good as Wood or Ramita, but... This issue, it does not look terrible, given it could have looked with Heck and Ayers. As you know, if you're a regular listener of this show, I like big honk and future armies fighting each other. And I think that Heck knows how to draw that. Heck has always been good with armies. And I think this is not a bad issue, penciling or inking wise, despite the fact that Heck and Ayers are not my favorite penciler and inker. I feel that we got the Dr. Jekyll version of Dick Ayers rather than the Mr. Hyde version. <laughs> and I think he actually does quite a good job with this. Yeah. I am relatively happy with the art. Captain America is able to rally the remainder of the kingdom's forces who were ready to surrender to instead fight to the death, fight with honor. <laughs> but then Kang sets off this weapon, says the Delta Ray Launcher. A weapon so advanced, so inconceivable to 20th century man, that it cannot even be described in terms of our present-day scientific knowledge. At which point, Stanley proceeds to try to describe it. (laughs) Delta rays, solid yet interdimensional, capable of penetrating any barrier known to man. I'm like, okay, in terms of uh, comic book science, I will definitely allow it. Pietro has separated himself from the Avengers a little bit, trying to protect folks from gas that's going around. He sees a woman with a baby about to be hurt, and he protects her and is injured himself. So he is going to be out of the story for a little while here. We, meanwhile, have this big old battle that's going on, and as soon as Kang's forces win, Kang then says, now I will marry Ravona." His warlords are like, um, hey, we've got a rule that you have to kill the rulers of any place you take over so they can't be a rallying point for rebellion. And Kang's like, yeah, but I like Ravona, so I'm not going to kill her. His forces rebel and start fighting against Kang while Pietro is being nursed back to health by the family of the woman who he rescued earlier. So that will come to fruition in a little bit. Then we see that Kang actually is really mopey and in love with Ravona. I love mopey Kang. Kang has RBF, but (laughs) Kang's RBF breaks on page 13, and suddenly he becomes Mopey Kang. We do get a little glimpse of the Caucasian-colored flesh inside Kang's face covering. Sometimes it's almost as if he just has a blue face, but we see around his eye hole a little bit and see his flesh color. I love Mopey Kang. He's got a you know actual <laughs> thought bubble with Ravona in it. Yes. So he clearly actually is in love with this woman rather than just like, ah, she is my prize. Uh, Well, she's that, too. Anyway, so the Avengers come up on Kang and then Kang suddenly offers to help the Avengers because Kang's warlords are now trying to overthrow him. He decides to throw in his lot with the Avengers because the enemy of his enemy is his friend. So Captain America agrees really quickly to this, yeah. <laughs> but they go ahead and head off to gather more of the loyal forces that are still in the protected city here. And they're like, uh, dude, Kang, the very name fills the souls of free men with utter revulsion. And yet, if it be our princess's wish that we join you, she says, I do so desire, citizen. 
then our lives are yours. So, okay, now we're going to fight to the death at the side of Kang. The warlord who is now on the throne, the one who is taken over from Kang, on the bottom of page 16, he looks very Asian. And in panel five, at the bottom middle of that page, is it just me or does he look like the Mandarin has flipped up his eye covering thing? And that's him. Yes. (laughs) He has a weird little thing on his headpiece that looks like if you flipped it down, it would be the Mandarin's mask. Kang and the Avengers are able to unseat the warlords. They're then going to have the final battle. But then it turns out that Pietro has been healed by some herbs that he was given by the family he had rescued. And he has already gone ahead and wrapped up the rest of the forces. Kang then is sending the Avengers back to the 20th century. He's saying to them, and now I shall return you to your own century. When next we meet, it shall be again as foes. But till then, I salute your courage and your power. So he's starting to time travel them back. And then right as they're fading out of existence, Cap tries to warn him that the warlord is having one last try to kill Kang. And he's shooting Kang. But Ravona, who finally is convinced that Kang is actually in love with her and is impressed by the fact that he was willing to possibly give up his conquest just to rescue her from death, throws herself in front of the blast and is dying in Kang's arms at the end. Yeah, an interesting twist. And they tell us that they're going to leave it up in the air whether or not she dies. Captain America asks, I wonder, will we ever know about Kang and Ravona? So yes, interesting twist. So I really like Ravona. I think she adds a lot to the Kang storyline. I like her look. I like what Heck does with her. I like their sort of soap opera drama. I think this is a strong ending to the issue. I, you know, this makes me want to see Kang again. With what will happen? Will Ravona survive? It turns out that she will, but she'll frequently have health issues in the future. Whether or not Ravona <laughs> lives or dies will be a ongoing concern. This is, I thought, next on issue. Yeah, this is a great wrap-up to this multi-issue Kang story. It's interesting to have the reversals with Kang's loyalties and the alliance of convenience that the Avengers take with him, and I feel that we have made him a somewhat more interesting character at this point, because I've never really been that impressed with Kang as a villain. But, you know, I'm enjoying him here. Yeah, and it's always interesting to see when the good guys have to team up with one of the bad guys against somebody else. Uh, And they can do it with anybody. I mean, Kang is a really evil character, (laughs) and yet they're doing this here. But then in the future, in the 70s, at one point, Warlock teams up with Thanos, of all people, right? So this is something that will happen in Marvel. You know, once again, the moral... Ambiguity isn't really quite the right word, but the uh, moral complexity that they build into these characters is really one of the things that makes this stuff great. Yeah, I always like stories where the hero and the villain have to team up. And of course, it only works if you have the line. And I think this is the first time, but certainly not the last time in the Marvel Universe, we have some version of when next we meet, it shall be again as foes, which is certainly a line I grew up with quite a lot in the comics I read as a kid. Yes. Let's just point out a couple of panels. On page 17, you were talking before about how it was strange to have the thing fight Black Bolt with a big stone pillar in the center. Talk about occlusions. This is quite a bizarrely occluded panel. We have two huge sci-fi armies going at each other in the background, and we have somebody's legs 
just completely blocking out everything in the foreground. It's the strangest composition for a panel, but I kind of like it. I, I think it's fascinating to yeah. get the sense that we're peering at this massive army between this guy's legs who is taking up the foreground massively. That's a really good way to hurry up a panel where you have to draw a whole invading <laughs> army. <laughs> yes. But then it also creates the, the sense of perspective there with something in the extreme foreground with these people in the background. It also seems to make that crowd look larger. Yeah. No, I agree. I like it. It was probably just to make it easier to draw the army and it creates a definite sense of perspective. Yeah. So I think this is a good issue. I always like future armies. So at this point, we have a future army storyline in both Avengers and Tales of Suspense this month, and I'm loving it. And one last thing for me, page 14, last panel. A, there is a ton of dialogue on that panel, but it still works. (laughs) It's still a fun, dynamic sort of panel. But Captain America is thinking, oh, Kang is too proud to break his word. I'm like, is he? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Then Hawkeye says, next thing we know, you'll be swearing in Dr. Doom. And Kang thinks to himself, Dr. Doom, little do they dream how closely related I am to the greatest archvillain of all time. But there is no time for that now. Just bringing back in that idea that there is some relationship between Kang and Dr. Doom, whether one is the ancestor of the other or they actually are the same person. And just got too stoned to remember. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I, I just uh, wanted to mention that panel. With every issue of the Avengers, I count down how close we are getting to John Buscema taking over the book with, I believe, issue 41. And it always seems perishingly far away. We are about <laughs> 17 issues away from a great artist taking over the book. Roy Thomas is going to take over the writing in about 10 issues. And John Buscema is going to take over the arts in about 17 issues. Then that is going to be the first really great era of Avengers, the Thomas Buscema era. We still have a long way to go. We've got a lot of heck yet to come. The experiment with giving him great anchors is over, but we will make it. We're going to tough it out. Oh, heck. Oh, heck. (laughs) Yeah, let's go ahead and wrap this up here. One thing you asked me at the end of 1965, what I thought about the fact that we were at the end of 1965 and what I thought of that. And I sort of punted the question to some extent, but I've been thinking about it more since then. And we really have reached the Marvel Universe. You know, when we first started this thing, the whole idea was, let's see how the Marvel Universe unfolds. Let's see how it starts from its weird, halting stuttering kind of beginnings where they're really just trying a bunch of stuff out and a lot of it doesn't work up to the storytelling edifice that we all know and love today in 1965 i think that's when it really took shape and now at this point this is definitely the marvel universe that we uh, grew up with so yeah 1965 was a um, momentous year for this and now it has delivered us to the year of soupy sales the year of soupy sales we've made it through january <laughs> with no soupy sales you know so this may have been overstated the degree to which it's the year of soupy sales because no sign in january but just you wait soupy sales is coming <laughs> Indeed. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, everybody. We appreciate it as always. Please rate and review us. That always helps a lot. And I guess that's it for me. So uh, goodbye, everybody. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for coming out. We will see you soon. Take care and stay safe out there. Bye. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. 
Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.